Hi, you guys, and welcome back to On the Slab. This week's episode is on Tarsem Singh's 2006 film, The Fall. We have a guest on today, too. Uh, my friend Wes Cowan, who's a filmmaker, has come onto the podcast to kind of chat with us about this movie since he just saw The Cell as well as The Fall. So he had some um, cool input to bring to the table this week. We had a super fun time recording this one. Uh, there was a little technical glitch, so some of the audio sounds a little bit fuzzy. But for the most part, it's an awesome conversation, and we get kind of deep into film theory to sort of talk about aesthetics. So we hope that you guys enjoy our take on Tarsem Singh's The Fall. Ladies, gentlemen, morticians, welcome to Zimorg. We have a new film on this lab tonight. Now we begin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to On the Slab, the film podcast where we take a movie, throw it up, cut it open, and see what makes it tick. I'm Sylvia Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. And, and we have a special today. guest oh, today. Already fucked it up. <laughs> oh, it's fine. It's fine, Silvio. All right. Anyways, <laughs> Do you want to go back and say? I would like to introduce... Me? Yeah, Wesley? <laughs> We're keeping totally that. Deep. Usually, when you introduce somebody, you, you use their name. We, we did, but, I, we did, but I, I stumbled over. Wait, how do I pronounce your last name again? Kion. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Like clown without the L. Kion. All right, Wesley Kion. We might have to edit around this, or just like we've got a little bit of fun to play with it. I think. We might just need to leave it. Anyways, and this week we are talking about the film, the 2006. Wait, wait, 2006, right? I've got, I've got this yeah, up here. Yeah, Yes, the 2006. Uh, Tarsum film, The Fall. So, Annie, you're the one who brought this to us, and a little peek behind the curtain, what we try to do is let the guests bring the movie to us, but uh, our last recording with Wes didn't quite work out, so we wanted to bring him on to this one because The Fall is such an interesting film in terms of production, so thank you for joining us, Wes. Absolutely. So, Annie, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you selected this movie? Death. Yeah, um, so The Fall is a film that I kind of routinely return to a lot. It's something that I, for some reason, I just end up gravitating towards it. So like once a year, I'll kind of sit down and watch it. If not the full thing, then at least parts of it. I find it visually compelling and interesting and um, I think it's just a really, really kind of fascinating film in terms of film history and shot composition and there's a lot going on in the fall and I think that's why I'm so interested in it. So um, my context for it is kind of coming back to it multiple times. Uh, but I don't know. How about you guys? So, Silvio, um, so this what's is kind of your feel? This is a movie that's come up a few times in, like, those social media posts of, like, ah, ten weird movies you might not have seen. And every time I've seen something for it, the visual composition has jumped out on me. And there's actually – what has fascinated about me – has fascinated me about it is there's a lot of really dense kind of storytelling beats tucked into the production and the, the ephemera of this movie. There's the title, The Fall – there's, you know, 
the imagery. So everything that comes out of it kind of radiates this air of mystique. So I've wanted to see it for a long time, and I was just actually really excited to see this for the first time, finally, because, you know, it was one of those movies I was going to get to eventually, which is a lot of the movies we're actually going to do on this podcast is, hey, here's an excuse for me to see the stuff that I was going to want to never actually see anyways, right? So you haven't seen this before? No, this was my first time. I watched it literally about four hours ago. Oh, okay. I actually thought you'd watch it for some reason. That's weird. Huh? huh. So, Wes, tell us a little bit yeah. about your relationship to this movie. Mine's kind of similar to yours. Uh, this is my first viewing of it, and my first time seeing it was at Blockbuster. It was on the wall, and all I saw was the cover, and I'm like, well, that's strange. And it says David Fincher on here. That's strange. And this is like, <laughs> before I was even on social media, so really had no idea what was going on with it. But I didn't even pick it up. I was kind of freaked out by it and then later on I got on tumblr and um that was like the only movie for a while that would show up in like those posts where it's like eight images of shot composition and the blogs start dedicating themselves to shot composition and i was like wow yeah that's really colorful i'll watch it someday and i never did yeah and the cover i actually will say because i didn't see the uh movie cover before pulling up the imdb for the recording but it's very dolly-esque isn't it Mm-hmm. It is actually based off of Salvador Le- Salvador Dali's um, image of Mae West, his portrait mm-hmm. of Mae West from 1934. So that's what it's being derived from. Like the red mask itself is what's coming from that. Oh, Annie, have you heard about the mustache? Well, uh, <laughs> yes, I have. Um, Salvador Dali was exhumed because there is a strange paternal lawsuit going on right now. And Salvador Dali's mustache is perfectly preserved, which I would expect because Dali. So that was my highlight of the week. Well, honestly, (laughs) the only other way this could have gone is that it's missing. And that would be terrifying. (laughs) That would be horrifying. That would be horrifying. um, Hello, um, Lionsgate. Uh, I have a uh, I have a horror movie script for you. It's brilliant. It's about Salvador Dali's missing mustache. No, 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 no. Better than that. It's famous mustaches from history. The Paris House. No, no, I have the title. I have the title. I'm not selling this to Lionsgate now. I'm selling this to, like, Spike Productions or something. But it's going to be The Harrisites. Okay, we're we're done with this thread. We're done with this thread. All right. This bit. Let's move on to our preliminary examination and do our summary, shall we? Let's. Preliminary examination. So, Wes, why don't you tell us a little bit about the content, the meat of the fall? Yeah, I'll, I'll try my best. Um, there's a lot to take in with this. Uh, it opens up with a cold open kind of style, old high, old, uh, old Hollywood western. Um, not really sure what's going on there. It's like people jumping off bridges and people jumping on horses. And then it cuts to Los Angeles in 1915. Uh, there's a young Romanian born girl named Alexandria, and she seems pretty precocious. And she kind of roams around the whole hospital. Kind of just, uh, it seemed very weird that she was just roaming around the hospital, but it's a different era. Mm. Um, but she stumbles upon this guy's room, uh, Roy Walker, who's hospitalized for being paralyzed, which I didn't know his last name till afterwards. I thought that was kind of cruel. But mm, uh, yeah. <laughs> Roy 
is a stuntman who is paralyzed from the, well, seemingly paralyzed from the waist down and uh, takes a little liking towards Alexandria and starts telling her stories and she just gets captivated by them. Uh, he initially starts telling her a story about the great Alexander the Great because of her name. And she does not seem very interested in that. So he moves on to a different story that he starts crafting about uh, five heroes, a silent Indian warrior, a muscular ex-slave, an Italian explosives expert, and Charles Darwin <laughs> with his pet monkey Wallace, and an Italian swashbuckling bandit. Uh, they all are deserted on the island because they all have uh, some beef with this governor, Odious, but they find their way back to land and start uh, wreaking havoc on his kingdom. But the whole story that he tells is intercut with their day-to-day life, and slowly you start finding out that he is telling a story to get on her good side, and uh, he starts kind of making her do things for her for him. His friends keep coming in to visit him, and you keep hearing mentions of suicide and this girlfriend that he lost. Um, but he convinces Alexandria to get her or to get him morphine because he is trying to do an overdose. But uh, in a cute little turn of six-year-old logic, she doesn't get him morphine because she reads morphine as morphine with a three at the end. So she gets three pills of morphine, which is not enough overdose so there's about three overdose attempts two of them go bad one of them because of the three kill or the three pills one of them goes bad because uh he asked her to steal pills from another patient but they end up just being placebos so he just overdoses on sugar and he goes into a little <laughs> uh diabetes coma i guess and then uh he makes her do another attempt oh no she does on her own free will at the end when uh, she tries to climb and reach for it in the pharmacy but but then she tumbles and falls she uh, has an injury in her head and he comes to visit her he starts drinking he wants to uh, apologize and just kind of let her be but she has such a connection with him and wants to know the end of the story so he kind of like starts telling her the end of the story but it's all revealed that he made it up just to make her do stuff for him. And he kind of, I, I don't know if he had an ending in mind when he was telling the story, but it kind of seemed like he just was throwing things together. Uh, and people from the story are basically based off people in Alexandria's life. So she's putting their images in her mind with these characters. So Roy is actually in the story as the masked bandit and after the injury uh, um he puts herself in the story or that might have been before the injury it was before the injury it was before okay um then she's in the she's in the story as daughter of the masked bandit Mm -hmm. saves him a few times um there's a small love story that never really comes to be because I guess love is icky in that kind of story. And uh, finally, all the all the heroes start dying one by one in this giant final storm on the castle. Uh, he finally gets up to the top with 
Governor Odious, and they have a small little battle, I guess, as a battle. Uh, but kills Governor Odious, and then kind of dismisses the love attempts. Then it cuts back to the real world. I don't know. I, I like yeah. I said, I, there's a lot. The the plot's a little thin on this one, and also a little confusing. But uh, that's, yeah. that's pretty much what happens, you know. Uh, Girl breaks arm, girl's in hospital, dude in bed, dude tells story, dude wants drugs. It's about it, you know. Yeah, um, A lot of this is, and I, I, we can kind of go to our initial decisions and kind of our comments on this movie. Now we begin the initial incision. And I'll, I'll start here then, but... I feel like this movie is more film as a, how do you say this, as like an experiential slash creative pursuit than actual storytelling attempt, I feel. The plot is kind of thin and in many ways somewhat nonsensical. Would it, either of you disagree? Yeah. With that? No, I, I think that sounds about right to me. I do see it as being very experiential and very located in like, the formalist qualities of what we're seeing. So like, it's very located in the visuals. They want mm -hmm. us to sort of love what we're seeing. And I don't know, there's this question for me of whether does Tarsum think that story is necessary? I don't, I don't know. I think or our is it just are going to be pretty light here. I think yeah. we're going to go to, I think we're going to deep cuts pretty quickly. The whole thing is going to be a deep cut <laughs> because this was hard. Anyway, yeah. Um, so let's I think, actually. I sorry. To a oh, I, yeah. I was just going to say. I think to a degree, he he had a very strong personal connection to this story. That's what I'm feeling from the movie because it feels very um, low key and intimate in a way. Even though there's such grand yeah. epic events that happen, all the stuff with the, the little girl all felt very intimate and. Um, it wasn't like it was just a a one-man operation. He did bring in some co-writers on it. So some people had input on this, but you might not have listened to him all the way through. Hmm. So um, let's start with uh, Wes. What are some highlights on this for you? Like, what? what's... Wh I mean, you, first of all, I'm, I'm guessing, did you like the movie? You know, I've, I've gotten into the habit of rating all the movies I watch on IMDb, like, right after I watch them. I have not rated this yet, because I really don't know. Yeah. I uh, I, did, I did not like it, for sure. Like, it was definitely an enjoyable experience, but, but I just don't know where on the uh, where on the rating scale. Okay, I'd so I, I have a fun little idea. Let's actually come back to that at the end of the podcast, and actually let's have you rate yeah. this live on cast. Because that'll, that'll be fun. Oh, okay. So that'll we'll, we'll discuss it. Uh, we'll, we'll digest it a little bit, and we'll see what you think at the end. How about that? Okay, that's solid. Uh, you know, right right now I'd probably give it a seven. All right, let, let's not get into that. Yeah, let's come back to it. So, what uh, what what are some highlights for you? What did you really like about this movie? Uh, visuals, obviously, visuals everywhere were pretty fantastic. Um, the the story was interesting. It just felt like a strange, like, Saturday morning cartoon in some ways. So that was kind of fun, but also, like, I don't know, kind of wishing there was more there. I thought uh, Lee Pace was awesome in this. And uh, just 
in general, it's a very unique experience. So I think that's 80% of why I love this so much is just the, the fact that I've never seen a movie like this before. Okay. Mm. What about you, Annie? Uh, give us some highlights. Oh, my goodness. Um, most of my highlights are shots. So uh, some of the shots that I really liked was um, the shot of all of the main characters on the butterfly reef. I really like that. I liked, uh, I mean, most the locations for me are the thing that I really enjoy the most about this film is the spaces that they've chosen to film this movie in. Also, um, another major highlight for me is Eiko Ishioka's costuming. So Ishioka is a super famous costume designer. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, I think I did. Yes, I did. Cool. Awesome. Uh, so Ishioka is a super, super famous costume designer. And this was um, one of the big films that she was known for doing the costuming for. And it just really shows like the colors that they're choosing and the shapes and the designs of the costumes themselves. So those were two major highlights for me, location and costuming. So Leo, how about costume? for you? Favorite costume is going to have to be the one that's used for... Um, Oh, God, this is difficult because each one of them is so significant. I do have to say that I really like Lee Pace's costume with specifically with the blue shawl that he has mm -hmm. placed over it. I think that's beautiful. I am a big fan yeah. of the Indian's costume. It's just it, it, gorgeous. It, it's got that lovely verdant green to it. But also yeah. among all of them, I think he has the most visible tools. You know, he has the sword and the shield. And also yeah. there's some variety in, you know, he unpacks his turban to use it as a rope and so on. So there's a little bit more visual variety to that character as opposed to, I think, everyone else. I really like yeah. Charles Darwin's uh, pimp coat that he has. Oh, yeah, no, it was really cool. Uh, what do you guys feel like? It looked? I felt like it, to me, it evoked a moth. I think we were talking about Clockwork Orange, potentially, as being an inspiration for that, too, though. Well, yes, yeah, so without, without the coat, uh, without the cloak, he's... <laughs> very clockwork orange kind of like almost in his underwear but uh yeah. the coat itself like it's got that interesting like black on white on red pattern which to yeah. me mm -hmm. i think evokes like one of those like fake eye moths yeah he does yeah. look like some of the butterflies that he collects yeah it's a beautiful visual detail all right so you guys and i i, I always get to this i always get to you know i'll ask the guests what they like i'll ask annie what she like and then i'll come back and it's gonna be yeah you guys have stolen all my favorite bits to talk about whoops <laughs> But Oopsie. I will say uh, one thing that I think really came through for me is the performances uh, by uh, Lee Pace and also by Katinka 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 Antaru. Mm -hmm. I'm probably yeah. answering that, and I'm very sorry. But um, and actually, I'm going to be more specific and talk about. Uh, Alexandria's performance in this, and it stands out to me because a lot of this film was kind of improvised around, and they set this up in such a way to give her a very naturalistic, somewhat improvisational response to actors' prompts and so on. So she talks like a child. She has this genuineness because there are many children, like for example, uh, you know, um, what's his name, who's the Home Alone kid. Oh, like Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin does not talk like a child in his childhood roles. You know, he talks mm, like right he's now. scripted, he's witty, he's snappy. 
Alexandria has none of that. She feels very natural. And it's actually working the script in ways that, while might be kind of clever, I don't really feel service the overall story. But again, story doesn't seem to really be the strong point of this movie. And it's very refreshing. It's very nice. And she's a amazingly charming character and performance in this film. Mm-hmm. Mm. So let's actually get critical for a moment. What, what irked us? What's not really meshing for us? Wes, do you want to take this first? I guess, yeah, I guess the story just, like, I don't really have anything fully negative about the story. It just, I feel like it's one of those situations where I like so much about it that I want everything else to be elevated to the elements I like so much. Yeah. Um, the, The story was just very surface level, even though it works on two layers, which is kind of weird. Um. And the editing was very odd. That's kind of nitpicky, but there's just a weird rhythm to some of the editing in there. Yeah, uh, there was. And that yeah, makes me wonder yeah. a lot about stuff in the film. Like, was was there a point where they got to the editing room and there wasn't enough film? Or what was going on there that there were these kind of, like, weird cuts we that were happening? We got two hours of movie. I don't see how there wasn't enough. Yeah, yeah I'm sure you never know, stuff, though. Sure. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Was there anything else, Wes? That's all. Really I weird really cut story. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's yeah. all I can really wrap my head around. Yeah. Um, I also felt like the storyline was severely lacking. Um, as somebody who knows a lot of Tarsem's work, so for instance, I've seen Immortals, and also his most recent, just absolutely atrocious mess. Uh, mirror mirror with julia roberts in it which was ugh. um i feel like tarsim is an interesting director for aesthetics but uh the content of his, his films themselves in terms of story and narrative are not particularly strong and there's a part of me that wonders why that is and also whether there should be a space for that um mm-hmm. Because I I wonder, too, sometimes about, you know, like directors who are so strong on both. I feel like we have a few of those. We've got, you know, Edgar Wright. We've got Chris Nolan. um, And, you know, like other people who are good at doing both. Is there a space for somebody to just do aesthetics and not to do story? I don't I don't know. That gets into a whole interesting. I think there are, but yeah, there's definitely a space for that. But I don't think it's where the studios keep putting him. I don't know why the studios keep giving him um, like mainstream looking projects. Yeah. Well, this is more of a meta commentary on his broader work. I believe this was largely self-produced. So this is kind of his passion project and, you know, we're kind of just privy to it rather than being, I think the target for it. Final report. The cause of death. So let's actually go, because let's talk about like aesthetics versus plot, you know, uh, visual art versus storytelling and kind of explore that space a little bit because that's I think one of the things that we're kind of grappling with and playing with in this space right now yeah yeah I think that's an important point to get at because that's what makes this film so difficult to watch and I think it's why I kind of enjoy it to a weird extent I am like Wes where I don't know how I would rate this movie and I know that a lot of film critics when it came out were kind of like this is a very beautiful film, but also it's boring. It's super boring um, because they didn't feel like the plot was good enough. 
So um, I guess for me as a very visual person who is also an art historian who sees a lot of paintings that the shots are obviously based on. So like that Salvador Dali image, um, Tarsum tends to pull a lot from neoclassical French artists. And, you know, like these people that we would see in museums who are like part of this famous visual canon, he pulls on that all the time. And I think there's something interesting about that because it's really kind of a strange tie over between film and painting. Uh, but film reaches a totally different demographic. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like my take on a surface level of what he's doing. But do you guys have any other thoughts about like aesthetics versus so, I actually had story? an interesting thought just now. Because first of all, yeah. I had the kind of pithy joking thought. I was like, wow, Tarzan would direct an amazing Knights of Sidonia music video. <laughs> but uh, okay. That, that's actually my thought is I feel like and I, I want you guys to take on this, but do you think Tarsen might be better served working in formats other than feature film? He was a music video director for a while before he started doing feature films. Um, and the ones that he did before are pretty striking, especially the Losing My Religion video by R.E.M. Um, yeah. But he hasn't really gone back to it, and I feel like it would probably do him a, a much better... Yeah. service to go back to that I mean, for a little while. At the same time, while. though, you're not going to get, like, these multi-million dollar budgets for a music video. So what I'm thinking, honestly, because I think, I, I do think this movie is far too long, and that adds to this feeling of it being... Way like, too long. When I'm in the moment, in the moment-to-moment, especially whenever we're in the story time, so to speak, I am actually really enjoying myself. There's a lot of visual storytelling. I'm very engaged. There's all this stuff happening on screen, like the Black Swordsman and all that. Or just every time they're on screen, I'm having a blast. So what I'm thinking is, like, if you took the storytelling portion of this, and maybe instead of trying to intercut it with the um, overdose storyline, which I don't really feel works out, if you had that as a framing device and maybe had this as, like, a half-hour film, I think you'd have a much more compelling experience, narratively. That's an interesting question. I don't know Wes, if it would work. you're the filmmaker, so what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if it would work entirely. I, it would probably need a lot of editing and rewriting because I think a lot of what you're bringing into that story world is based on what you've already seen in the real world, the quote-unquote real world within the movie. Um, because you see the connections of the characters that he sees in the real world, like Luigi is his best friend that comes to visit him in the hospital, so there's like a added weight to that character. Um, I mean, I, I think it could definitely work as a, as just a fun story that's set in that world, but it would need uh, some reconsideration, especially with how him and how does Andrea keep kind of adding on as the story gets told and it gets modified to kind of go with her mood in some points. Yeah, the kind of, like, mood beats. Yeah. I actually do yeah. want to call to a particular uh-huh. shot, and it's not a shot so much as a cut, but I do love the introduction of the second story time, because the first one starts with Alexander the Great and kind of cuts off. Mm-hmm. But when he's when he introduces the story, he says, all right, close your eyes. What do you see? Nothing. All right, rub your eyes. 
you see the stars? I see the stars. And it's a match cut to the stars, and you drift down to the Butterfly Island. And that's a beautiful, beautiful transition that really sets that kind of sense of wonder and, you know, fantastic, fantasticalness to the story, which I think really yeah. helps sell everything. Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I wonder if anybody, you know those people who do, like, the YouTube recutting of movies? The people who did the stuff with Star Wars and all that. I wonder if anybody has ever made a different cut of this film. Like, you know, people putzing around online. Because I could see visual elements like that being a great place to start the film directly after he has this conversation with Alexandria. Mm -hmm. Like, that would be... I think that would be just kind of interesting. I also don't know if I think this would work in, like, a half-an-hour to 40-minute format. Um, just because there's, there is actually a lot of storytelling. I'm just not sure that it is doing what it could be doing to be as tight of writing as there was of shot composition. So I think that's a question. Um, well, I mean, I I guess the question also comes to, do we think this movie needs to be fixed? Because that's kind of. Right. I, have, I have another theory about what could maybe be done to make this, I think, a more compelling and more interesting movie. But we have to actually address like the core, the core assumption that you know a movie needs to be raised to some kind of objective standard. And I kind of right. think this, at least in this case, it doesn't because it's not you know a studio commercial project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that was what was with my question before: is you know, can there be a space for this? But also that provides this new question of what is the space for this? Is it a gallery space? Is it um, a film festival space? Is it a space where you're providing online content where somebody can go and see you? I mean, this is before, this is 2006, so this is really before we start to see projects like that. I don't know. I think this would be a great film to toke up to. Yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, dude. Reefer Madness. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like it probably would have been a better experience if I had watched it in a theater. I probably would have came home and been like, I just saw this incredible movie. Oh, no, no, no. I would love to see this in like a 70 millimeter print, just like on full screen. Yeah. I don't think Mm -hmm. this was filmed in 70 millimeter, but that seems to be the new hotness that everyone's trying desperately yeah. <laughs> to save or talk about as the new great savior of movies and the film-going experience and all that. So, you know, that's kind of what stands in my head is, oh, the theater experience and film and theater mm-hmm. and all that. That raises a good question, I think, too, about... So, like, us having this conversation about aesthetics versus narrative. I'm wondering, have we drunk the Kool-Aid? Like, it seems like we're starting to question things, Right. But I'm wondering for a lot of audiences, have we drunk the Kool-Aid? Has there been this moment where audiences are demanding aesthetics and storytelling in the theater in order to go and see a movie? Because, like, I don't see that with Transformers, right? So Transformers is also this film where it's about aesthetics and somewhat about storytelling, like a little bit. But you don't hear as much critique of Transformers, you know, like coming from audiences as I think I see of the fall. So I'm wondering if this is something that we've kind of bought into because we've sort of been conditioned by studio movies to desire these things or to call that success in film. But I think with Transformers versus the fall, it's an expectations 
kind of deal where when you go into Transformers, you're expecting just mindless metal moshing. Um, yeah. With the fall, it's kind of presenting itself as a independent art house film. And depending on what a viewer's experience is with art house films, they can range from something that's very dense in the story to something that's very sparse, that's more visually appealing and more about the, uh, the sensual experience of it. Okay. Or mm. the, sens- the sensory experience. I have kind of a thought regarding Art House and this film specifically. Not so much about Art House, although, like, there's kind of that modern resurgence with, you know, Drive and God Only God Forgives and stuff like that. Right, with Rewinding Riffin. It's kind of finding a new space where it's not... And, like, I, I, I can also see that with something like Tarantino's latest movie, Hateful Eight, where I think it's a less enjoyable film than some of his other movies because it doesn't have that visceral kind of... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? that uh catharsis like a lot of yeah. movies do but it's a denser more like harder to digest movie that i think is a quality that many people did enjoy even if it wasn't like immediate and gratifying like that but yeah right uh regarding this movie i think the 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 title i think is something important here it is the fall and that works on multiple levels. There's multiple physical falls that happen. There's multiple falls that happen in the story. And it's kind of about the moral slash uh, emotional depressive fall of uh, Roy Walker. And right. I think it doesn't quite push that hard enough. Because the biggest thing that made me kind of go, okay, well, the story just didn't go anywhere, is the yeah. ending scene where the ending sequence after Alexandria has her accident and Mm. she's in trouble. The elements of the story are moving through this confused brothers Quay-esque animated sequence where they're cracking her head open and, you know, fixing her. She wakes up covered in bandages. Her arm is healed. And after that, he's by her bedside. The fact that he's allowed to be there and he is in tears and she's making him tell the story and he's killing off the characters and trying and using them as stand-ins for himself and how he's an unworthy person and how he was never her savior and she should hold him to that. And she's fighting against that. That's this really compelling narrative beat. And that's kind hmm. of, if you focused on that and hammered that and refined that, I think that would be an excellent narrative thread for the whole thing. But in the end, it's kind of, the ending is, I think the epilogue is probably what kills it for me. It's kind of like the Harry Potter epilogue where it's like, oh yeah. And then I like watching Roy's movie and he does a lot of falls and he he's a good guy. Like, I, d- I think the feel-good ending takes away from that kind of visceral exploration of a theme and an emotion that is dark and compelling, and that all the brightness and color and wonder serves to contrast and make feel just... You know, I, I really felt it in that moment, and I feel like it just kind of drained away instead of being a central point around which the rest of the movie was built. Hmm. So you interpret that epilogue as Alexandria is kind of like an almost a happy ending. Alexandria is talking about his films. Interesting, because I actually sort of interpreted it the opposite way. And I I don't know, Wes, how you interpreted the ending at all. But um, I because this film is so much about getting into the headspace of these two characters. So you have this kind of like fractured headspace of Roy, right? 
um, where he's kind of been broken psychologically. And then you have Alexandria's headspace, which is a child's headspace, which is there are certain restrictions in a child's imagination that um, there are less restrictions, I should say, in a child's imagination than there are for adults. So she's going to be more exploratory. I interpreted that last scene as Alexandria thinking that she sees Roy everywhere and Roy has killed himself. Hmm. So that's actually how I read it. I sort of read it as this is how she copes with this. Um, even if she doesn't know or if she never sees him again, like she sees him kind of like everywhere. I don't know. And again, that's one of the things that you can do with aesthetics. You can have multiple readings of stuff. What about you, Wes? Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I could see it. I, I don't know. I guess I was a little bit more with Silvio in that I felt okay. like it was kind of attack, attacked on happy ending. But when I'm looking at the summary right now, I kind of see more of what you were saying, Annie. Um, yeah. But it, it just doesn't really feel like he thought it through to the point of I wanted it to end here. Um, this almost feels like something that I know that it was an independent feature, but it feels like something a studio would be like, come on, let's, let's wrap it up with a happy ending. Let's, yeah. let's tack this on. I, I think uh, in a way, I think this movie would have benefited from not being such a dark story in the real world. Um, mm-hmm. It's rated R, but only for violence. So they, they could just strip the violence out, make it a little bit more, uh, less depressing in the real world because it's, mm. it's almost like a princess bride story um not the story within the princess bride but like you know telling a story while you're bedridden yeah. Um, yeah and it's so close to being just a really fun interesting story that i think a kid would really appreciate like she does in the movie but no kid's gonna watch this movie yeah mm. i will say that i personally have no interest in a pg-13 fall and because like I, I I get what you're saying, and I agree that it could be good and it could be successful in that way. But as an as a viewer, I am personally not interested in that because when when I come to the fall, my expectation was of this kind of beautiful art house like Dali esque beautiful imagery. And one of the things that I think would really neuter this movie for me is removing the blood. Because they're, 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 the, the squibs are very explicit in this movie. Things explode, there are these startled mm-hmm. flashes, and there's some imagery that I think is really beautiful. Like, when the, when the brother and his men are flayed and made into a chandelier, that is a haunting shot. That's true, yeah. I love that yeah. shot. And then, you know, you have uh, Luigi's blood trail as he's walking and preparing to blow himself up. I think that without an R rating the imagery would feel very constrained and I don't think I would be nearly as into it as it is. And I'm like, I'm already on the fence, like conflicted. Like I like a lot of this movie. I don't like a lot of this movie Uh and you know, I'm wrestling and grappling with it. And I think that without that, I just kind of would go, "Eh, it's not that entertaining of a story and the visuals. Eh, you know? Yeah. Yeah, And I'm not saying it should. Oh, sorry. No, go uh, ahead, Wes. Go ahead. I wasn't saying that it should be PG-13. I just meant that it kind of is, is walking that line so oddly. Like, mm. it doesn't really put its foot in one realm or another, which I think is kind of my issue with the whole movie is that it's 
doing something so well and other things not so well and so it's committing to be a dark story in some set or some respects and other parts feel very childish and almost tacked on manufactured happiness. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question too. I'm I feel like if this was given a PG thirteen rating and they had shifted some of the storyline around, um to me, the story would be something closer akin to the movie Up or to Princess Bride, like was mentioned before, uh, which would make it a kind of children's fairy tale or fable. Because I don't know that that's what this movie is and what it's doing. I think this is a movie that contains a child that requires an adult viewer to understand what Tarsim is saying about children's imagination and children's headspace that is different from adult headspace. Um, I mean, like, you'd have to basically completely redefine the film to make it something for children. For for example, just, like, the very beginning is, like, you need to get me morphine. That assumes Mm -hmm. a very adult understanding, not only of what, you know pain medication and opioids are but like of the idea of suicide it's very central to this movie and you could make a chosen movie but like you'd have to change so much that i do think it would be a completely different film oh yeah it might just be a more stable film in terms of writing if you did that which is i think Wes, part of what you were saying is that if you kind of like tone some of this down and rewrite parts of it you're going to have a more structured narrative um something for children And I actually have something I want to bring up here is this idea of popular design versus good design. And I talk about this in game design a little bit, but also mm-hmm. with narrative design is I think there are many points where you'll run into something where you can say, this is the narrative choice that will have a more artistic merit. It will be true to the artistic vision. It will make people see and feel things. And then there is the commercial or popular design where if you make this choice, then, you know, audience will come out happier. They'll be more likely to give it a good review where you're you're not trying to please the critics. You're trying to please the crowds. And mm-hmm. instead of making a hundred people question their humanity and really explore something, you're making a thousand people go, yeah, it's pretty good, you know, mm-hmm. and for studios, there is that is always the choice. For studios, they want to say, you know, um, give me a redraft, uh, change this to this, make this guy funnier, make you know, make this guy play up the accent, whatever. There's very easy choice to do this. But with an individual project like this, like this is Tarson's film. I think it's fairly it's self financed, uncontro- yeah. yeah, uncontroversial yeah. to say that. So that yeah. I don't think Tarsem is necessarily obligated to make those popular decisions, and I think. There are many different ways this could be a more successful narrative film. And yeah. Again, I, this is why I feel it's weird that this is a feature. Like, I, 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 right. I don't know that there's necessarily space for a longer film. Like, that makes it more of an art exhibit or something. But yeah. I, I, I feel like I'd rather see something shorter just because then it would some, be, still be something accessible for us to see that could be released, but not have the... Mm-hmm kind of narrative constraints of, well, how does this work as a story? How does this work in an hour and a half to two hours? You know? Yeah, I think... 
this is a film that for me, it's, it's about producing a feeling in the audience and not so much like you were saying, going for this kind of studio cut ending. He's going for a specific feeling, which when I saw a lot of the locations, what I was struck by was awe. This sort of idea of seeing something and being like, holy shit, look at this location or holy shit, you know, like this is a beautiful way to be showing us this site, you know, like with the camera work, like how you're thinking about the space and stuff. Um, to me, that is what this film is about. It's not about the story. It's about producing awe and wonder for the audience based in space, color and costume design. Like, that's what I think Tarsim is trying to do. He's trying to solidify his aesthetic style in the film. That's yeah, that's opinion. that's fair for sure. I I wouldn't really put too much credence on the, the story, but I just, because we were talking about the story, I think that's why it's so um, prominent in my mind of the issues I've had with it. But yeah. if I did, if I look at the movie and I try to recommend it to somebody, I wouldn't be telling them, oh, it's such a good story. I'd be talking about how beautiful it is and just, like, sit there and take it all in. Well, actually, this this brings me to a point that I think is interesting in our discourse about movies as a society is we love plot because plot is the mm-hmm. easiest thing to look at and say, what could we change? What could we do? You know, in comedy, it's all about the writer credit. You want the creator credit. Uh, but it's... So much in the way of it's difficult to say what would happen if, you know, we change this actor or if we change the camera work. Whereas we can very abstractly contain a plot within our heads and say this worked, this didn't. I think it's probably one of the easiest things to engage with where you can look at yeah. something like, you know, even and not just movies, but, you know, any product that is largely narrative, you can look at it and say, oh, well, you know, this decision, this character did didn't make sense. But you ignore the context where, you know. But it felt right in the moment, you know? And yeah. I think that's something that happens a lot where we're like Annie, we talked about Splice a while ago. And yeah, we did. I remember <laughs> when I watched it the first time many years ago, I didn't like it because I felt like the plot didn't make sense. But it's not about the plot, it's about those themes that they're exploring and these characters and these impossible situations. And I feel like that's something that when we try and look at this film as a plot, as a strict narrative, I feel that does a disservice to the kind of pastiche that gestalt, like, entire experience. Yeah. Well, and I think, so, Wes, you're a filmmaker, and this is something that, you know, like, you're going to have to contend with as a young filmmaker, too. Is this constant desire for plot, kind of like what Silvio is talking about? Um, And so there's questions here, too, about, where is there a space for you to develop your own individual aesthetic identity? Like, when does that happen? When can that happen? Um, versus you being asked to make things that conform to, you know, like a specific set of standards or interests that, you know, like somebody who's commissioning a film is going to request of you. Is that ever a concern for you? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I don't have the, uh, financial ability to make anything close to the fall, which is only $3 yeah. million. Dollars. Yeah. Um, this was only $3 If million? I wanted to. Yeah, this was is like only $3 million. Dollars. Oh my God, this is gorgeous for $3 million. Holy shit. I know. 
Location oh, wait. scouting. No, that's the box office was 3.7. Oh, oh, I'm going to oh, say. Damn. <laughs> so what was the actual budget? Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure that's probably available. Oh, that's it interesting. It might not be, honestly. But, that's yeah, so I can't make anything anywhere close to this in scale or ambition. And just on that level, I'm so excited that he did that and created something on his own free will. But um, I know that a lot of people, especially with YouTube being such a big deal, they are kind of taking on more commission jobs to uh, pay the bills, basically. Yeah. And you just want to be creating. That's, that's the big deal is that if I could be working my normal day-to-day job, which isn't filmmaking, or mm-hmm. filming a music video for $500, I'm going to want to do the music video. But yeah. uh, YouTube has also given people such a space to do stuff in their own voice, but it's such a large pool that so few of those original voices get pulled out. So I think um, there's definitely space to create your own voice and uh, aesthetic, but how successful it is is dependent on so many different factors that it's kind of like you need to marry that with a uh, generally accepted story idea in order to get that across, which is why I think Tarson's probably gone into these more conventional. Oh, yeah, like Immortals. Yeah. 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 He also recently did a series called Emerald City, which I don't know if either of you guys have seen it. Um, no. It, yeah, it is. It's a new take on The Wizard of Oz, and it is probably one of the most visually stunning television shows that I have ever seen. Um, it's one of those shows where I found the visuals so striking that I did actually buy all of the episodes and like I have this at home to kind of, you know, come back and and enjoy. Um, And there's also much better writing. Uh, The plot is more self-contained. And again, this is not to say that the fall has to conform to these ideas. But Wes, this is a really interesting idea that you're bringing up, that there are kind of almost limits to individual creativity if you want to eat. Yeah. and you kind of sort of have to marry your aesthetics with market, um, with what is marketable. So it's just interesting to me that Tarsem, you know, like after doing projects like The Fall, where he has such a strong eye, like this is somebody who sees the world and is looking for visual parallels with some of their the things that they've seen before, whether those be artworks or places they've been or whatever that he's moved to these sorts of like more conventional spaces like television shows or like the Greco Roman sword and sandal thing that is immortals. Like that makes a lot of sense to me. Silvio, you're also somebody who is doing a lot of work as an artist and an animator. Are you feeling some of the same kinds of things that, that Wes is feeling in terms of creativity versus market or. Yeah, kind of. I mean, because you're in a different space. I, I'm in a different space. Classes. Animation's a weird space, and we, we could probably get into this in more detail at another time. Sure. But with animation, a lot of what you're going to be doing is contract work to or trying to find a steady studio gig. And that's ultimately kind of where I came from, because I worked on Prisoner Zero, which was an amazing project, and I've never been more proud of anything I've done 
I love that yeah. feeling, their family to me. And that's probably the most creatively fulfilled I was because I was making good money doing creative work. But ultimately, I've mm-hmm. stepped back from that and kind of refused the idea of even going back to that because I don't want to be a cog in someone else's machine. And that's, you know, a difficult path to walk. You got to find your own time. You got to pay the bills while still being able to do it. And occasionally you can stumble into something. But I've, I've run into that situation where I'm trying to manage, I'm trying to, you know, get my foot in the door in the IP game. You know, you want to own something. Mm. So at the very least that you can be supervising something and directing something. And you can accept compromise with that. I've got a project I've been pitching that I've been working on a pilot and a storyboard for that I have made compromises to in order to make it more marketable. But even if I'm making those compromises, I can make I am the one making them and I can make them in the way that I think best serves my desire for it to be a good product that has my identity in it. So you can say, yeah. oh, yeah, you know, add in a funny character, add in like a funny psychic. But then I get to design the psychic. I get to add some sub themes to it. I get to control how that comes about. And yeah, it's maybe not my original vision, but sometimes working within those constraints lets you come up with really brilliant things. Mm. So that's a really interesting question for both of you guys is where do you feel more pressure as filmmakers? Because I'm wondering if this figures into part of what I see with Tarsem doing with him going so strong on aesthetics and a little bit less strong on narrative. Do you guys feel more pressure when you're crafting narrative or when you're crafting visuals? Well, personally, I, um, I try to marry both of them while I'm, because I, yeah. I, I ideally I'd be directing my own script. So right. when I'm writing the script, I think of how I'd want things to visually play out and different visual motifs I could repeat. Yeah. Um, but like currently I'm writing one script that I'm calling like my script that I don't want anyone right. else to direct. And I'm also writing something that if I went to LA, I'm like, you want to buy something here, take this. And yeah. it's just some, like something that have my name on it that people can reference as like, this is all that he is known for. Let's see what else he can do. So okay. with that one, I'm not as concerned with visuals as I am just the story to make sure it's um, able to be, accepted by multiple people and appreciated on different levels. Okay. Okay. And then Silvio, how about you? Do you feel more pressure on visuals or story? Uh, well, see, th- this is kind of interesting for me because I'm, I'm an animator and animation is very labor intensive. So I've actually kind of backed off on the visual side of things and I'm more concerned with design and, you know, story because ultimately I don't want to be Yuri Nordstein. I don't want to, you know, work on one film for 20 years. I don't want to be Richard Williams. And because you can, you can do that in animation. You can spend years and years and years crafting this beautiful thing. And people will love it. And I'm sure, like, that works for some people. And I don't, like, denigrate anyone who does that. But that's not what appeals to me as a creative. I don't want to do that. So I am more... I feel, I think, more pressure to write because I think ultimately... I want to be leading a team. I want other people to be working with me and distributing the load of creating those visuals. Like I've already got a friend who I want to hire to do some uh, storyboards and some, uh, you know, pitch bibles for me because she's such yeah. a better artist than me. And I'd okay. rather be. I, I, I'm more concerned with narrative and the narrative conceit and the format okay. than that. So that's kind of where I'm. A, I'm not there yet. I'm definitely not there yet. But that's where I want to be. Huh. Huh. 
So this is really, really interesting. Um, I was just thinking about other filmmakers that I feel like have done a lot of stuff with aesthetics and less than less with plot and then sort of get a reputation for that. So, for instance, Terrence Malick. I don't know if you guys have ever seen any of his work. Um, He is kind of the director that you're sort of talking about, Silvio. He's the guy who, like, gives people shitty script direction, which Christopher Plummer now refuses to work with him ever again after having worked with him in the new world. Um, the filming took too long. He wasn't given good script notes. It was kind of a, you do you and I'm going to film you and I'm focusing on aesthetics and not on plot type thing. And it makes the project take too long which is difficult for actors too. So there are like practical constraints to the whole aesthetics versus narrative debate, which I think are sort of interesting. Um, yeah. So Malik's one of those guys. And then you mentioned another director, Silvio as well. Um, uh, Yuri Norstein. Uh, yeah. Williams. Uh, yeah. Yuri Norstein has been working on the trench coat for, I think 20 years and Richard Williams has been wrestling with the thief and the cobbler for a very long time. See, I feel like at a certain point you get to this issue where you've had something for too long and you're too close to it and you're too inside of it and you can't do, (laughs) you can't do the project. So it's not just a matter of we had to stagger this project over nine years so we could get to these locations like it was with Tarsum. Cause that seems to be what happened during the fall. Yeah, no, the they had to start. actually, from what I've from what I've read, seems like well, first of all, it is this artistic, you know, indulgent. Uh, I don't want to say self-centered, but you know, um, self-interested. Yeah, it piece. is. Yeah, uh, but also that it's a very smart design, a very smart production design. It's filmed over many years, uh, but it's all about locations, and also Tarsem did. From what I understand, he did many other film projects, so he would be at those locations and then be able to bring this film there to do sections of it. Yeah. Mm. So it's a very smart production, even if it doesn't, even if it's a little bit long-winded. And, like, I don't know, I don't really have more to add to that, just that I think that that's really clever and that's really cool. Yeah, to be working on other projects and also have this passion project on the side. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really clever of him, especially considering I I didn't think it was that um well I didn't know it was that well planned out I assumed the long production was because of financial issues which it probably is a little bit but um you had mentioned earlier that you wanted to kind of talk about the production cycle on this oh yeah oh yeah Sylvia yeah so one thing one thing I've noticed with this film is that. It's a little meandering, and I think part of that yeah. comes from this feeling of being filmed over a long period of time and having the film, as a result, be less malleable. Because you, when you're doing, like, a 30-day shoot, you know, at any point you can say, okay, we can bring these guys back and do a 30th of the work to in, you know, in one day to fix it, like... With voice actors, for example, if you want to re-record a line, a lot of times you can just do it online. A lot of voice actors have their own home voice recording studio, and you can make small changes very quickly. But when you're doing something this long, it's like, okay, we shot all these scenes in, you know, India. We shot all these scenes in, you know, South Africa. Then you know, you can't say, okay, we got everyone together, fly everyone back to India, go back to this historic 
site, cut off all the tours again. Like, the amount of work you would have to do to go back and make changes to a movie like this, or not even to make changes, but to make new footage, is ridiculous. Whereas, and especially yeah. with modern epics, like something like Valyrian, where you're going to have a lot of it be CGI and be able to be changed in post. Whereas this, like, huh. I, I, there, there are a couple shots where I'm like, is this melding two different location shoots with a little bit of, you know, uh, uh, matte cutting and so on? But other yeah. than that, I feel like this feels like Bram Stoker's Dracula in that, like, I feel like yep. 99% of this movie is in camera. So yeah. having everything be in camera, you, you have to have, like, you can't make changes and you can't make a super tight movie. So I feel like something like this or, like, you know, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus where I think that engenders this kind of meandering dreamlike quality that this movie has. And I think it is to this movie's benefit because it is a storytelling. But that, again, is a smart production. It's a creative conceit that benefits from the production design decisions that are made around this movie. Yeah. That's a very good point. Um First of all, that this is intentional. And then second of all, that, you know, like this film kind of does have legs to stand on itself, um, despite it being a very long, long, long production. Uh, Wes, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to this? You had mentioned something about Ridley Scott when we were chatting earlier. Oh, yeah, I've just... Recently, I had this strange awakening with Ridley Scott um, because he's he's got some classic movies. But if you look at his giant filmography, most people probably only love like two or three of his movies. Mm. Um, but I recently saw his new Alien movie, and I kind of realized that he's so in depth and detailed with production design that I don't think he really cares so much about story. Um, huh. I think he is going for more of a experiential thing. So I think okay. that's why I'm connecting that with this one so much. Is But huh. it, as we've talked about this more, I think Tarson does care about story. He just um, maybe needs a little bit more guidance. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Wes, I have a question for you, and this is only kind of tangentially related to things, but <laughs> what do you think mm-hmm. of the George Lucas question? Uh, specifically, and let me elaborate on that, is this idea of having constraints to art enhancing them. Because th- this is, and I know this yeah. is a gross oversimplification, but my feeling is that George Lucas produced brilliant films, well, directed one and produced two, brilliant films mm-hmm. with, these creati- with these creative constraints in the original Star Wars pre- trilogy. And with the prequel trilogy, everything was attributed to him in such a way that there was no one to say no and I feel like that resulted yeah. in a poor movie. I think that creative constraints, I think cre- constraints allow you to be creative in a very specific way, and that going for pure vision, of just being able to go forward without any kind of limiting factor, is not necessarily always going to create the best art. So I was wondering, hmm. as oh, a yeah. filmmaker, your kind of thought on that, I guess, formulation of filmmaking. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I um. I mean, I, I don't think many people would argue with you that Lucas's prequel trilogy is better. Um, but because he is kind of like this weird entity in 
Hollywood that has all this money and all this clout and he can do all that he wants. Um, there are like moments of brilliance throughout the trilogy, but overall it's not good. And I think in general constraints are good because it makes you really consider if this decision needs to be made, if it needs to be made this way. But also, um, do you know who Alejandro Jodorowsky is? Uh, yes, I think I remember it pronounced differently, but I could be wrong. Uh, I could. I don't really remember I have no how idea it's pronounced. Yeah. He he did some midnight movies back in the day, like El Topo and Holy Mountain. But he was tapped to do Dune, and there's this documentary that's fascinating about his crazy ideas of what he wanted in this I Dune movie. I want to see that Dune so bad. I know exactly who you're talking about now. Yeah, I, I do know. Yeah, him. yeah. His version of Dune sounds bananas. He he wanted so this was like 1970s something, um, before Star Wars even came out. He wanted Pink Floyd to do the music. He wanted H.R. Uh, Geiger to come in and do production design from Alien. And he had all these people on board. He wanted a giant tracking shot at the beginning that would go through the entire universe, pass all these spaceships. And um, it was like a 20-minute opening shot. And the story was going to be very faithful to the book. And he had his son in training to be the lead actor for like six years doing martial arts training. Um, this is crazy. And the fact that this, yeah, you need to watch this documentary because the whole time you're just like, are you seriously going to do that? <laughs> but uh, the fact that it didn't get made is really sad because I'm like, I, I want to see this. But also, that's where there's like no constraints until the studio came in and just said no. So that's like an extreme version where artistically they had complete freedom, but when it came to the final part of the puzzle the money they just had a, a hard no on it i think if there was like negotiations we probably would have gotten that but uh alejandro is not one of those filmmakers to make negotiations no. huh. Huh. and then there's other people like nicholas winding ruffin who is constantly battling studios about what he wants in his movies and still gets a lot of what he wants out there to varying degrees of success so I, I think constraints are definitely a good thing. I just want to bring up a counterexample of, I think, the other extreme of the spectrum where you have something like Saw, for example, I think is a brilliant movie. Not necessarily as a filmic experience, but from a production standpoint, it's a script that is designed so tightly that it could be filmed for nothing and still be this really like visceral experience. And I think that's yeah. something that all the sequels completely missed. But the first right. one to me has this very special place in my heart because it's all focused around one moment when, you know, Carrie Eels cuts off his leg. That is just one of the most visceral and unpleasant moments in film, to my knowledge. And, mm. yeah. you know, it works. The entire film is designed around that, and it was done for almost nothing. I mean, as far <laughs> as films go. Like, to you or me, that's right. a lot of money. But, yeah, you know. So... I, I do find appreciation for really smart production design and, like, these issues because you can do these really creative, clever things in them. And, you know, you, you get to stuff where, like, you look at Alien, you look at H.R. Geiger, Xenomorph, and you go, like, oh, those, like, stretchy membranes in the mouth, those are condoms. You know, like, yeah. it's like th there's so many clever things. And as an audience member, as strictly viewing it as a visual or narrative experience, there's a lot of this stuff that you'll never even appreciate until – 
you go into like filmmaking and film production and go behind the scenes. And I'm actually a little conflicted about that when it comes to certain things, like something like Ghost in the Shell. I haven't seen the new movie, but I've heard a lot of things, and we'll probably look at it to do a review at some point. But from what I understand, the plot is kind of nonsense, and as a narrative experience, it leaves a lot to be desired. But I love the production design. It's so beautiful. The props, I think Weta did a lot of the props for that. They did. The the geisha robots. Oh my god, those things are so gorgeous. And I always get conflicted about that. Because when that kind of movie's in theaters, I want to see it because I want them to keep making these high-budget, high-concept you know, sci-fi movies and all that, or high-fantasy. But also, I feel like studio, you can't put your dollar just towards the special effects. You also have to buy the script that come, and the actors and the performances that come with that, and sometimes that's not what you're there for. And I feel that studios probably look at films as narrative things. So when, you know, you make something like this, and if this movie had been a breakout success, if this movie made, you know, $300 million at the box office, they would look at it and go, okay, we want more, you know, uh, dream within a dream, weird shifting narrative movies, when that's not what this movie is about at all. You know? Right. Like, if Schindler's List came out today and it made a billion dollars, people would go, oh, people want more World War II movies. You know? It wouldn't be about the emotional journey. It would be about these kind of genres and categorizations and actors is like, oh, Liam Neeson's really bankable. You know, oh, black and white isn't a descent. Like, I think studios right. take all the wrong lessons from it, and it makes it very difficult to appreciate these things and to, you know, as you say, vote with your wallet with them. So, I don't know, I don't really have a point to this. It's just something I'm kind of exploring, <laughs> and I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts on that. Uh, I, yeah, because this weekend there's three movies I really wanted to go see, and I was like, well, I want all of them to have success, but they're all so different. One of them's Valerian, one of them's Dunkirk, and one of them is uh, Girls Trip or Girls Night. Yeah. Um, I, I want to see all three of them really badly. I'm like, where does my dollar go this weekend? And I still haven't chosen. I have all today to choose. But I, I know it's just one person and one ticket price going into this. But um, I feel like subconsciously once i make that decision i get i like pay more attention to how other people are reacting to that movie i choose and with baby driver i went and saw it and it was pretty empty theater and now afterwards i just see all these people doing uh showings and reviews of it it's kind of like it's kind of one of those things where you don't notice something until you discover it on your own and then you discover it everywhere around you um Mm. so i feel like if i decided to go watch Girls Trip, I'm going to see a lot of think pieces all of a sudden. And <laughs> there, there's an effect, actually. When, when you learn a yeah. word for the first time, like you'll start seeing mm-hmm. it everywhere. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, I have a question for both of you. Have you yeah. ever seen a film where you felt really good about supporting it for one aspect of it, but felt bad about supporting it for another aspect of it? <laughs> Annie, I see you're smiling. What, what, what are you thinking? <laughs> So um, last night I saw Valerian because um, I'm I'm really interested in Luc Besson's work. I enjoy The Fifth Element tremendously. I think Luc Besson is a really interesting director, and he does really fascinating stuff with production design and visuals. Valerian is probably one of the most overtly racist, homophobic, and sexist movies that I've seen in a very long time. And enough to me to be like, oh, my God, this is so regressive. 
So um, after seeing it, there was a part of me that was really kind of like, well, you know, like you have these things in the production design that are really doing something new. Like if you do choose to see this film, um, it is wise to see it on a very large screen because it's doing some incredible things with world design, uh, with an action sequence that takes place in differing layers of reality. That was really kind of interesting to me that I didn't really have a context for beforehand. Um, But also it's got this storyline and this made me think of this concept of the ethics of this kind of aesthetics versus narrative debate where you are going for kind of like a pure aesthetics. But then on the other side, um, not only is your story filled with lazy storytelling, it's also doing some things that I consider to be really unethical as a filmmaker. So yes, yes, I have seen a film that made me uh, want to support something for one aspect of it. And also just made me like deeply disturbed afterwards for having to go see it. I don't know. Have either of you guys seen something like that? Wes? Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was like a really terrible action movie, but there was like three really awesome sequences in it. So I was like, you got to see these sequences, but the rest of it was total shit. Yeah. I wish I could remember (laughs) what it was called. (laughs) Um, Well, I, I feel that way about the Star Wars prequels in that there's some really gorgeous design and set pieces and, you know, ILM just pushes the envelope with visual effects but at the same time, I think the stories are crap, and I think George Lucas really lost the ball. But actually, I want to talk about one thing that's coming out soon that I'm kind of excited for and kind of dreading is Ready Player One. Now, going to get oh, a yeah. lot of flack from this. We're going to get a lot of flack from the podcast, but Ready Player One, yeah. the book, is a trash fire. It's yeah. just, I make yeah. reference reference to movie from 1984, and that is the entire right. plot. The characters are unlikable, all that. And so I think if as a storyline... Unless there have been some major sweeping changes that I haven't heard about, it's going to be a dumpster fire. But <laughs> right. the trailer just came out, and the trailer looks fun as shit. Like, yeah. there's these amazing, like, car sequences and this... Like, I really want to support that kind of crazy-out-there visual design and production design and the animators. This is going to pay for, like, 18 animators' mortgages at least, you know? Oh, but yeah. It's... It, it's beautiful, and I really want to see that, and it looks fun and exciting, but also, you know, I really <laughs> don't think I want to support the financial success of, hey, remember the 80s? Yeah, that sells! Yeah. That sells! Yeah. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, Sylvia. Like, I read the book, and I was like, oh, great, thanks for the nostalgia trip. I really don't want to read this anymore, but I read all the way, because everyone loved it so much. And when the movie was coming out, I'm like, really? We're doing the movie? And then I saw Spielberg was attached. I'm like, Spielberg, you really want to do that? I actually but, think uh, the movie might be better than the book. I, I, mean, I, I think it's going to be, for sure. Like, I actually felt that was the case, for example, for um, the uh, Hunger Games movies. Because the books, for mm-hmm. me, just don't work on a sentence level. <laughs> they, they really don't, because they're first-person, present tense. <laughs> so you lose the immediacy of uh, third-person. Person, but you also lose the voice because they talk like some kind of robot that's like, I meet my friend Wes, who I just met just now, and talk about like this. Wes is wearing oh a hat, which I see, and I note because it has a logo and a David Bowie shirt. Like, no one talks like that, no one thinks like that, so you lose the immediacy and the character voice. It just, right. they're, two, they're two literary devices that are completely incompatible, and I don't know how those books got famous. I really don't. <laughs> so, without that, as visual storytelling, I think it works a lot better. So I think that might actually mm-hmm. be the case for Ready Player One. 
Yeah, and I think I, I was really craving a new Spielberg action movie because I think he's one of the best action directors ever. And mm-hmm. uh, this looks like speed. It looks like Speed Racer plus Spielberg plus uh, Internet eighties nostalgia. So it could be a mm-hmm. a hot mess. Yeah, who knows? Well, I think Spielberg probably has the sense to not lean into the nostalgia so much. I think if it's kind yeah. of because here, here's the thing. Uh, just from the trailer, I think it's actually probably handling it better from the book, just because you've got stuff like, oh, there's the Iron Giant walking around, oh, there's the right. DeLorean, and that's it. It's just there, you see it, and you move on, whereas in the book, you'll be right. like, and then I got into the DeLorean from the 1989 movie Back to the Future, starring oh, Michael God. J. Fox. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's very true. Dropping. Exactly. Uh, uh, any closing comments? I think... Uh, or do is there anything else we want to actually discuss more in depth before we finish up here? I think all we wanted to close on was, um, Wes, how has this conversation affected how you would rate yes, the fall? Yes, let's go to IMDb. Let's rate this for you. Come on, Wes. <laughs> because... Oh, boy. Um, you know, I'd probably give it an eight, I guess. I, I've, I've jumped up one rating from when I entered into this conversation. You're welcome, Just Carson. because... <laughs> those imdb yeah. ratings really help um i think it's mainly just because the artistic ambition is so unfiltered and kind of incredible to see roger ebert's review of this was basically like you should go see this just because it exists and it's like yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly where i stand on it um i did want to bring up one thing though real quick did you notice how saturated this movie was? Oh, yeah. So saturated. Holy shit. Yeah. So it's like a level of saturation that I can't place more than two other movies that look like this. Um, his other movie, The Cell, and then Amelie also has like yeah. this look to it. Yeah. And it seems like it's like an early 2000s, like, we just know how to do saturation now. We're going to throw it at everything. But yeah. this one carries it better than I think um, the other two do because some of those locations just really they they're so colorful in oh God, real no, life that... the, the the shot with the orange sand and the black tree oh yeah. my god Boy, yeah. just, just the locations in this are so beautiful and the wide panning shots i i think it has a couple of those michael bay circular tracks that are just yeah. so <laughs> beautiful in this like michael bay will do that around something dense and complex but this just does it over <laughs> these wide, expansive places that are just so beautiful. And, like, I'm, I'm appreciating this movie, and I think I'm definitely going to come back to this as kind of a study in composition and visual storytelling because the it's beautiful. It really is just a beautiful film. And, yeah. you know, I could take so many stills from this and just put them on, like, on a poster. Just, I would look at right. that every day. What about you, Annie? Any last Maybe. thoughts? I have to agree. Um, the saturation thing made me wonder if they had put, if that was something that was done in post-production or if that was something that had been done through changing out lenses. So like, for instance, for CSI Miami, they put a kind of like amber lens over the camera Uh to give Miami this sort of like orange tannish glow. It made me wonder because the greens and the purples and the oranges really jumped out at me in this movie. So I think it's just an extraordinary movie because Tarsum has such a good eye for color, for shot composition. Um, He knows what colors to pair where. Like that is 
that is one of his talents is to really use yeah. color as a highly punctuative element of his filmmaking. And I think that's why I like this film so much. Well, I kind of want to point yeah. out at Wes a little bit because, you know, you're, you're the filmmaker among us. But mm-hmm. I get the sense that Tarsem, I think, does as much as he can in camera. Would you say that's the kind of the case for the saturation in this film? Yeah, because, uh, well, honestly, with saturation, it's kind of a weird thing because it's so easy to adjust in post. He might have just upped saturation in post, but... You could have, um, I think you have to at least accommodate for that in the filming because yeah. you can only add so much sat- more saturation before the amount of visual data you have just kind of breaks down and you get these weird, like, right. awkward compression patches and so on. And I think this is probably done on film, but still, like... I, I do think even if it wasn't purely in camera, he did have to accommodate for it and plan around it. He probably thought oh, about sure. it. Yeah. It's yeah. because when you, it's kind of similar when you're doing black and white, just as it is with high saturation, high color, you have to plan all the production design around that. So when he wanted to show like a really green Vista and the, the colors of the costumes would, would possibly clash with that, in a way that he didn't want. He might have had different versions of each costume ready to go for each yeah, shot. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um... But some of the costumes look like they're straight from Mortal Kombat, so... Oh, no, the costumes um, gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. They're this. just, like, over-the-top and beautiful and strange. Yeah. yeah, I mean... Which, another thing that I just thought of is, um, I don't think he likes using special effects and computer stuff because he doesn't. based on the cell, whenever they had any computer effects in there, it looks like trash. Because they have all these, these fantasy sequences and when it's just like, look at this co- costume, look at this cool setting, it's great. But then they like try and throw in a weird demon with like a flowing cape that expands into an infinity and it looks like PlayStation 1 graphics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for me, like, the comparison I want to make in terms of the costuming and the accommodation for the color grading is The Matrix, where you could just film oh, yeah. that as a standard video and apply, like, a green overlay, and you would get a much more mediocre result than the kind of drab olive of the world that comes from painting literally everything green. You know, yeah. I, I wrote a short story once, and a line I used was, uh, the interrogation room had been painted with that last bucket of green paint that the Wachowskis missed. You know? <laughs> like, that, that's the story. Yeah. They painted everything in, a, like, a thin veneer of green. So, even if it is in part done in post, I do think that it was largely accomplished with optics. So, I think mm-hmm. that's oh, yeah. impressive feat of filmmaking. And... It's just beautiful. I, I, and that's that's the fall. It's just a beautiful film that not, that doesn't necessarily work as a narrative piece, but is just such a visual piece. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyways, Absolutely. This has been On the Slap. I've been Silvio Emery. You can follow me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. And I've been Annie Neller, and you guys can follow me at, at Lights and Music on Instagram. And we'd like to thank our guest, Wes Kaon, for being on today. Um, Wes, do you have any social media stuff? Or yeah, anything you want to plug? at Wesley Kaon. Yeah. Anything you want to plug? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, nothing to plug right now. Just You can find me on all social media with my real name, at Wesley Kaon. 
Alright, well, thank you so much. Uh, please remember to like, rate, subscribe, whatever it is you do, wherever you get your podcast. We do pay attention, and every little thing does help. Please tell your friends. You know, leave us a comment. Send us an email at onthislab at gmail.com. Leave us a comment on SoundCloud. Leave us a review on iTunes. Everything helps. Thank you guys so much. You guys have a great week. Catch you next Monday. Bye-bye. Bye.